Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. And this morning, we're thankful that you've given us the gift of your word so that as we read, we can learn more about who you are and more about our relationship to you. And so we pray that today you would teach each one of us the very thing that we need to hear. And so now, Lord, we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I have a problem. I have a lot of problems, but I'm only going to share one of them with you this morning. There's this thing I do all the time, all day long, for no good reason. How many of you have cell phones? All of us. How many of you have smartphones with all those needless, endless apps on your phone? So here's one of the things that I do. Some of you that know me know this. I scroll through social media feeds all the time. And there's never anything really good that I find, right? I mean, there's just tons of, if you're on Facebook, it's just a bunch of articles about the latest thing that's going on. If you're on Instagram, it's people posting pictures of all their awesome lives, right? And Twitter, I don't even know. No one even looks at Twitter anymore. But isn't that what we do? Like, at least that's what I do. Sometimes I look at the pictures that I see on Instagram and Facebook, and sometimes, oftentimes, I think, man, that person's life is really awesome. They have the best marriage. They have the best car. They have the nicest house. Their job is awesome. And I do this all the time, and, and I know that those pictures are posed and intentional and purposeful, right? Because no one ever like takes pictures of when you're in a really bad mood, right? No one takes pictures of, of when you're arguing with your wife or your husband. No one takes pictures of the bad stuff. We just pretend and take pictures of all of the best stuff in our lives. Isn't that true? I have this saying when I, when I start to think this, and I don't know where I got it. I think it's original. But whenever I start to feel like, oh, man, their life is so much better than mine, I have this, this saying. It says, uh, pictures tell a thousand stories, and most of them are lies. Because the mo from one moment, you see this picture, and then you realize that couples are breaking up or getting divorces. Or you see this picture of a job, and they're by the beach, but what they don't tell you is that they're the delivery person. I don't know. <laughs> see, we can't compare our lives to the lives of other people based on social media. Because those are fabricated, idealized versions of what their life actually is like. But it's not just social media that shapes how we see ourselves. It's the voices of the people that are in our lives. It's the voices of our friends, of our brothers and sisters. It's the voices of our parents that tell us who we are. It's teachers, it's preachers. People all around us, it's the media, it's the music, it's the models, it's who says what is beautiful. There's all of these things that are trying to tell you that who you are is this person. Because what we do is we begin to compare ourselves with other people. We could say that all of those things, whether it's social media, whether it's friends, whether it's family, they're all a bunch of chatterboxes in our lives. And for us to live a truly genuine life of Christian faith is to crash all of those chatterboxes and ask them and demand them to be silent. Because there is only one voice that is truly important. There is only one opinion that should shape how you see yourself. And it's not your wife's, and it's not your husband's, 
and it's not your parents, and it's not your bosses, it's not your children's. No one's voice should determine how you see yourself except the voice of God. And I know that that's what pastors are supposed to say. Okay, can we just, can I get an amen for that one? Most of you already know where this sermon is going. So I'm just going to put that out there and say, like, I know that's what I'm supposed to say. But the reason we preachers say those kinds of things is because we find these stories in the scriptures that tell us that this is how things should be. So if you um, have your Bible, I suppose we can use paper Bibles this morning. (laughs) If you have your Bible, if you don't, I invite you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, so it might be a little bit different from the Pew Bible. We're looking at the story, and if you're a guest, um, we'll do the best we can to fill in the gaps. But in the very beginning of Jesus' adult life, right, Jesus goes and he gets baptized, which is this Christian way of publicly proclaiming that you want to entrust your whole life to God. And it's a public declaration, at least in, the, in today, that God will be the one who guides us every step of the way. And so this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was getting baptized not because he had sins that had to be cleansed, but because he was saying that he is entrusting himself, his whole being, into the hands of the Father in heaven, of God. Right? Or, yeah. God is beyond gender, but of God. After Jesus comes out of the baptismal water, so he comes up out of the water, right? So it's a, and so here's what, here's what the Bible says in verse 17. Matthew 3, verse 17 says this. And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, the one that I love, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus had his identity from the very beginning of his ministry rooted in the all-encompassing love of God. Jesus understood that with God's love, and again, we talk about Jesus and Father and Holy Spirit as three in one. The way that the Bible is written kind of shows us that there's this father-son you know, parental, child relationship between God and the Father, but that's just so that our human minds could comprehend what was going on, okay? Because we cannot grasp, we cannot fully grasp God, and we cannot fully grasp what it means that there is a trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that somehow has lived in all eternity. We can't fathom that. What we do have is the language that we have scripture, and what this is telling us is that Jesus' identity was rooted in the all-encompassing love of the Father, Jesus hadn't done anything yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Jesus hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't performed any miracles. He hadn't really done anything up to this point in his life. And yet we find that even in that state, God says, this is my beloved. This is the one whom I love. I am well pleased in him. And that rooted Jesus' life. And his foundation was on the fact that the God who creates all things and sets all of you, the universe, into motion, he has his back. And he is the foundation for all that Jesus would do. His identity was rooted in, in God. The reason that that's important. I just lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. So here's, here's, here's what this means. Some of you are saying, well, how does the love of someone really shape or transform you? Let me give you a real-day example. I think my sister will get this, I hope. So my, we come from a family where we don't talk about our feelings all that often. Like, I think I'm the one that talks about my feelings all the time. 
<laughs> you know, I'm a pastor, that's what I do, right? We grew up in a place where, you know, you just kind of like, ah, we don't talk about it, right? Like, ah, feelings are uncomfortable. Nothing wrong, nothing against us, right? Is that true? Kind of? My sister and I are close. We talked about our feelings, but we just don't, except if we're upset. Okay, here's what happens. I couldn't remember, like, I, I remember talking to my parents one time, and I said, just tell us you love us. Like, I just need to hear those words. This happened, like, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I know my parents loved us. They did everything for us. They showed me that they loved me by everything they did, by all that they provided, by always helping, by always being there. So I knew my parents loved me. But there was something about knowing that or hearing them say that. So when I talk to my dad on the phone now, right? My dad's like 66 years old. Um, when we talk, at the end of every conversation, my dad says what? I love you. I love you. I've come to expect it. I know it. I love hearing my dad say, I love you. So I say, I love you too, dad. But when I talk to my mom on the phone, she's a little bit tougher to crack. She doesn't always say, I love you at the end. And it's not that she doesn't love me. It's that like my mom's like, go, 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 go. Like she's always working. She's always doing something. And so I have to be like, you know, hey, mom, I love you. And she'll say, I love you too. And when my mom says that to me, it sends me to the moon. I know she loves me. Like, I'm not that high maintenance, I hope. But I know that she loves me. And when she tells me that, I feel like I can conquer the world. And there's no one else in the world whose I love you does that to me. Because when we know that we are loved for who we are it changes the way we see the world. So when Jesus hears these words that he is the one whom God loves, before he does anything to really, I mean, earn it, right? He hadn't done anything spectacular yet. God already tells him that he loves him. And this morning, I hope that as we begin this conversation in the next verse that we're going to look at, is that your identity would be grounded in the all-encompassing love of God. So it's not just that that verse is about Jesus, but really it could be you, your name. Insert your name. You are his daughter. You are his son, the beloved in whom God is well pleased. So we look at the next story in Matthew chapter 4. So that, that is setting up because then the very next story in Scripture tells us that Jesus goes into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And it is in this time of transformation, as we say, the number 40 in the Bible is about transformation. We see, um, we see that Jesus is tempted. And we're looking at the second temptation. Last week we started on the first one. But we're looking at the second temptation, and here's what verse 5 says. Chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, so thinking Jerusalem, and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written that he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. He says, if you are the Son of God. Jesus had just been told that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is the beloved. He is the one that is loved by God. His identity is rooted in this God. Nothing bad had happened yet, but right after his baptism, the temptation is, if you are the Son of God. 
what he's really doing, what the devil is doing in this story is making Jesus question his worth, his value. He is making him question whether what God already said is indeed true. And that happens. The devil is, in this story is the symbolic chatterbox in the ear of Jesus. And you know, this happens to us as Christians, right? We, we give our life to Christ. We're baptized. We say we want to follow God everywhere he leads us. We want to trust him. We want to surrender to God. But then we sin, and then our, va- our, our, our own self-worth feels like, well, we're not good enough. Or we start doing these things and we make mistakes or, or we do things that we're not supposed to. And so all of a sudden our sins and our shortcomings begin to define you. Our failures, our feelings of unworthiness, feelings of being unlovable. All of these things begin to play like a loop in our brain telling us you really aren't still fully loved by God because you have messed up time and time again. But what the Bible teaches us is that that's not true. The Bible teaches us that you are the son and daughter of a God who loves you, of a God who is trying to lead you down the path that will be the most abundant kind of life, that will ultimately culminate into living into all eternity. Now, we don't know what eternity looks like. We don't know what this heaven will look like. We don't know what the new earth will look like. We can't think about that, other than it will be the better than the most awesome day at Disneyland. I don't know if that's your favorite place. My favorite place is a pizza joint, but whatever. (laughs) Better than the very best that you've ever experienced, eternity will be like that. And so the voices in our head, not literal, some of us, but these things in our head are telling us that we are not worth it. So there's this book that I came across, and it's not on the PowerPoint because we don't have it, but I, I want you to kind of picture this. We all, know, we all know the reformer Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther over 500 years ago who God used to begin this kind of reformation in the church, and which will ultimately lead to us over 500 years later to be here. Not, not just him, but, you know, him and the reformers. But this, this girl, Rachel Held Evans, writes in her book, Searching for Sundays, that when Martin Luther would go to these darker moments in his life where he would get down, where he would get depressed, that he would calm himself by saying, you are baptized. You are baptized. You are baptized. And it's not because Martin Luther believed that there was something magical that happened because he had been baptized. He doesn't, it wasn't that like, oh, I'm baptized, and so he was superstitious, but it was that his identity of Martin Luther was rooted in the fact that he was beloved by God. Because ultimately, baptism isn't just about the symbolic nature of coming up out of the water and partaking in the newness of life, but what she would write is that baptism is a naming You are now named with the one who has created all things. You now take on the, well, not not, not then you take on the image because you were created in the image of God, but it is at baptism that in a sense God puts his seal on you. And it is that he has said, you are my daughter. You are my son whom I love. And when your identity is rooted in the love that is, the Bible says is unconditional, do you know what unconditional love means? There's nothing you can do to mess up. Or no, you can mess up a bunch of ways. There's nothing you can do for God to stop loving you. Because God's love is better than the best love that you've ever experienced in this world. 
The problem is that in this world, love is so selfish. And then we think that that's how God loves us. Well, if you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll do this. But the reality is that God's love is so far beyond anything we've ever experienced. That's why we have a hard time believing that just as you are, God loves you. We have a hard time believing that because we see what love looks like here and we've been through breakups and we've been through divorces and we've been through you know, failed friendships. And so we think, well, God must love like that. We don't really think that. Because but with our minds and our voices, we'll say, no, God's love is better. But that's how we kind of interact with God. And so what she is saying through this, it's the reminder that at baptism, when you've given your life to Christ, God names you. Not change doesn't really change your name. You're still just the same person. But now there is this seal of approval. And it says, this is my son and daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And she writes, Jesus did not begin to be loved at the moment of baptism, nor did he cease to be loved when his baptism became a memory. Baptism, she says, is simply, baptism simply named the reality of his existing and unending belovedness. Love how she writes that. Baptism is the reminder of the, of the unending belovedness of who he was. And so as we continue to think about the different things that shape how we see ourselves, I'm going to read a short section, okay? So just try to picture what I'm saying. She continues to write this about how our identities are shaped. She says, Indeed, our sins, hate, fear, greed, jealousy, lust, materialism, pride, can at times take such distinct forms in our lives that we recognize them in the faces of the gargoyles and grotesques that guard our cathedral doors. So she's talking about our lives. And these sins join in a chorus you might even say a legion of voices locked in an ongoing battle with God to lay claim over your identity, to convince us that we belong to those sins as opposed to God, and that they might have the right to name us. When God calls the baptized beloved, so when God calls you beloved, the demons, right, the sins, call you addict, Sinner, failure, fat, worthless, faker, screw-up. When God calls you child, the demons beckon with rich, powerful, pretty, important, religious, esteemed, accomplished, and right. It is no coincidence that when Satan tempted Jesus after his baptism, he began his entreaties with, If you are the Son of God if you are the son of God and so as we continue to develop our faith it cannot be rooted in all of the voices that are all around us but rather in this voice that God is approving of who you are and so as we continue to look at this story Matthew chapter 4 the devil says if the devil takes something that is good. He says, is, he says, if you are the son of God, the devil says, it is written that God will protect you. The devil then takes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and he says, hey, look what the Bible says. Look at this thing that you're always reading from and quoting from. The Bible says that God will do this, so do it. But what we find is that for Jesus to have done that is to inappropriately put God to the test. 
See, what was happening is if Jesus had done that, could God have saved him? Yeah. But you see, if Jesus had actually jumped or thrown himself from the pinnacle, it was as though he was trying to manipulate God into doing something. Can we manipulate God into doing anything? Come back next week. We'll talk about whether God we can manipulate God into doing anything in our lives. No, we can't. But the devil was trying to make Jesus question not only his identity, but question whether what God says about himself is true. You see, these temptations are the temptations that you and I face every single day. Do we truly believe that what the scriptures tell us is true? The devil tries to take something that was true and he tries to twist it. And so Jesus, in this Jesus, judo fashion, says this. Verse 7. Jesus says again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus didn't have to put God to the test to see if God truly loved him. Jesus' faith was enough to know that God did love him. You see, you don't enter into your Christian faith just for what God can give you or what you can get out of God. Faith is about an active relationship. This sin here, I would say, not just myself, but everything I read this week, was the sin to do something spectacular. As a preacher, this is how it works in our lives. Every once in a while on Wednesday nights when I get a chance, I go to this church in Los Angeles and and it's, it's just a church, and they always invite preachers from all over, and I like going because it's fun. Like, church is fun for me. And um, whenever I'm up there, I fall into this trap of, man, that preacher must be really holy. That preacher must be really, like, in tune with God, and his faith must be awesome, and that's why he's doing all of these things. I do that, and I'm not supposed to do that because I'm a preacher. My faith is supposed to be just as spectacular. But we end up doing that. We look at the faith of other people and we think, if only my life was like that. Look, I know some of you have said, like, oh, like, I thought you would be more holy because <laughs> you're the preacher and you're the pastor. But you're not. <laughs> and they say that, I think, as a compliment. Sometimes, sometimes not. But the truth is, is that sometimes we do that to look at the lives. Like, like we do that and we look at other people's faith and we say, I want my faith to be like that. I want it to be spectacular. But the truth is that for faith to be truly spectacular isn't to make a show about it. Because if you take the time to read the Gospels, if you just read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus came and Jesus would only ever get mad and lecture the religious people because they try to make their faith look super spectacular. That's why they didn't like Jesus, because he was saying, all these things that you think you're doing right are really not right because you're just doing them for show. For faith to be true, for faith to be genuine and authentic, it must be active. It's not just an intellectual exercise where you know where all the Bible verses are and you look like you're doing the right things and you dress the right way to church and you give the right amount. But for faith to be truly active is found in the final text that I want to read this morning. Faith must be active. And I don't just mean prayer and Bible study and showing up to church. Because you can be doing all of those things and your heart could still not be into it. But if we look at John chapter 21, and I'll read it for you here. John 21, verse 17. Jesus, is. this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's talking to Peter, and he asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gets hurt. He's like, of course I love you. And this is how Jesus responds. 
feed my sheep. It wasn't just to give food or spiritual food to people. But what Jesus is telling Peter is to, he is calling him back to the call of Abraham thousands of years sooner to be a blessing to other people. But you can't really be a blessing to other people unless you realize the blessings that God has given you. And you can only know that if your identity is rooted in the belovedness of who you are and in the love of God. So for faith to be genuine and real, is that you take everything that you have learned and then you begin to pour it into the lives of other people. And that's not easy. Not just like your wife and husband and the people that are easy to love, okay? Like, that's, you're supposed to do that. But to love and serve and be a blessing, especially to the people that are harder for you to love. Is it easy? No. I, I don't do it well all the time either, if that helps, so... Knock me down a peg. But that's what faith is. Faith is about taking the reality and the truth of God, the grace that God has given you, and then extending that to everyone you come in contact with. Because the kingdom of God is one where we all try to reflect this unending and endless love and grace of God to everyone who will listen. Amen. Amen.